not necessary in the air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked you're here. I am just back from an incredible 10 days of paragliding in Washington, making deep connections with my friends, broke my personal record three times, ended up with a personal best of 245 kilometers, flew for seven hours from Chelan, Washington, deep into Idaho, and then sat in the back of a truck for five hours as we drove back. It's a crazy sport. More about that soon. But today, I've got another riveting conversation with my friend John Verveke. John is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, and he's a deeply insightful person. Today, we talk about the rituals that we've lost over time, why we've lost them, what they, what the, what the lack of these rituals actually does to our psychology, to our culture. It's a really, really cool conversation. I don't need to uh, preface it too much. If you guys like this podcast, consider supporting it. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. I appreciate all of the donations. And without further ado, here's a little bit of music and my talk with Dr. John Verveke. Enjoy. Bones, the ones who don't worry about getting to own the way the people are happy with the broken hearts, the ones who draw a picture and proclaim that it's hard. But you and you and you and you are just an animal developed into you and you and you and you are monkey knees dance, so do you. Catching a cold, where the people are happy with the broken hearts, the ones that draw a picture and proclaim that it's hard. But you, 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 you. Hey, John, thanks for being here, man. It's a pleasure to be here again. All right, my pleasure. Okay, so I sent you an email. This thing that I've been ruminating on for actually, uh, I would call it more than three years now. And I just, I'll give you a short rant here as to kind of frame my inquiry and my growth in this way, as well as try to outline what I think we should ruminate and design today together. That's great. So I think there's a number of things that I've come across that point me towards the reality that ancient civilizations, ancient tribes, they valued every single member of the tribe so highly they knew that every person's development was existentially important, that for the tribe to be strong, every person had to be strong. So no person was left behind ever. And the development of each individual was the responsibility of everyone. Like the, the idea that it takes a tribe is not merely convenience, but of existential importance. And it seems to me that we have lost a lot of the milestones, the ceremonies, the rituals, these coming of age, these rites of passage moments in people's lives that really allow the community to imbue them with new responsibilities, new, um, new privileges, to educate them about what's happening in their bodies, what's 
going to happen in their social lives, what's going to happen in their minds. And, you know, in the ancient ways, these ideas of like the things that I've heard, like there's these tribes in Africa that will make the men when they are trying to become men, they'll put their hands in these mitts full of bullet ants and they have to allow their hands to be bitten by these ants, not just once, but like multiple times over the course of the year and it's just excruciating pain and sacrifice. You know, another tribe in the Amazon builds these huge towers and they make their late adolescent males go into the jungle and find vines and make their own essential bungees and they tie them to their own ankles and they have to jump headfirst off of this tower. It's an act of courage. You know, and these are the, you know, the teachings of Don Juan of going into the desert alone, fasting, having huge struggle where you have to really endure something. These seem to be missing from our current culture. And it seems that this is an important way that we have generational exchange. My last conversation with Zach Stein, we talk about how this generational exchange is so broken right now and we absolutely need it. And so in my own life, this looks like the other day I was talking to my best friend. He just had a child. It was his birthday. We were talking about this exact same thing. And he says, at what point did I become a man? Was that when I got married? Was that when I turned 18? Was that when I had a child? You know, I'm talking to my girlfriend yesterday and she says, I was never told anything about my period. You know, and I'm talking to my friend today. I'm at the river with him and his son, who's very young. And we're talking about at what point is your child ready to have a cell phone and what do you educate them about? So there's these biological things, there's social things, there's, there's technological things, there's cultural things. And for me, this inquiry really became salient around my birthday because a birthday is such an obvious milestone that we currently celebrate in our current culture, but we kind of fuck it up from my point of view, because we basically say, blow out your candles. Like you can have any, you know, it's like almost hedonistic. Like on your birthday, you can just have whatever you want. You can eat cake for breakfast, ice cream for breakfast. And it really like, there's nothing you have to endure. There's no reflections that you're expected to give. There's no affirmations that you're expected to receive. There's no new responsibilities. There's no, um, you know, your, your parents don't tell you what their lives were like when they were 17, you know, and you know, as we are so deep in this meaning crisis that is affecting adolescence really heavily, it seems like these are important things that we need to ruminate on. We need to kind of start um, talking about. And it seems like there is movement here because my girlfriend is very uh, deep in the women's circles and stuff. And there's a lot of uh, mothers who are now doing like their, their daughter's first moon and they're like really setting um, setting an intention, helping them understand what's happening, helping them just like move into that. And it is a coming of age thing. And so um, today I'd love to just hear your thoughts on why you think this is important. Like what are our needs? You know, Zach Stein was talking a lot about identity loops that aren't currently being closed by the families, by the communities and are being hijacked by social media. Um, as well as I think that we all agree that 
if we're going to change the world, we need to be embodying new levels of personhood. This is what you and I talked about on our last talk, the real revolution, the axial revolution, not a political one, but an, a one of embodiment, a one of enlightenment, a one of reverence. And so I would just love to hear your thoughts on this kind of thing. Also, do you have children? Yes, I do. You do. Okay. So you are an expert here. I'm not an expert on anything about that. Uh, uh, probably on, on anything. Um, so, yeah, I have two, I have two sons. Um, my younger son just went to his 16th birthday, which is sort of a milestone. Um, so this points to, so let's talk a little bit about the plausible origin of these rituals first and what's going on in them and what they're bound up with. And I think, you know, you should always listen to what Zach has to say because he always has to say something very insightful, very relevant. I take very seriously everything he says. Um, so I think it's plausible. So here I'm following the work of Matt Rosano. I think it's plausible that a set of rituals all emerged together um, during a crisis period um, in human evolution. And I talked a little bit about this in the series, but I think we, if we let's, let's bring it in here again blow it up a bit, and then I think that'll give us something we can start to talk about. So it's not clear when, but you know, sometime around 100,000 BCE, 70,000 BCE, the problem with these dates is it's a bit fuzzy, but it looks like humanity went through like a, a bottleneck. We almost disappeared as a species. We were really shrunk down. I've heard estimates, and I, I don't know how to judge the accuracy of these claims. But, you know, that we, we were down to like, you know, 10,000 individuals kind of thing, you know. And it looks like what happens, and there seems to be archaeological evidence for this, is human beings adopted a strategy that we don't see them adopting before. They seem to adopt a large-scale trading networks. There's other things they do. They start to vary their diet. They move to coastal locations. There's a bunch of other strategies they do, but what, what seems to be really cool is they open up trade networks. Now, this is really important because this, this brings up uh, a, a very important issue. But first of all, why, well, before I talk about the issue, why is the trade network valuable? Well, of course, what that does is, the reason why we trade, is it makes you less hostage to your particular circumstances. And don't forget, whenever people are, we only have archeological evidence of them trading goods, but it's plausible that, of course, ideas are being exchanged. Of course. And so, right? So, people's knowledge, their grasp of larger patterns, uh, picking up of new skills, new technologies, new techniques, um, and also trading. All of this is a very powerful way in which human beings can um, ameliorate uh, local environmental conditions that are putting them under threat. So, and of course, uh, this, this strategy spreads throughout the world, right? And, we, we haven't forgotten that lesson. Um, uh, it's sort of the initial uh, dipping of our toe into the pool of pluralism. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's where it starts to begin. Now, that sounds like, okay, well, that's all very practical. But as I try to show in my series, these practical things tend to permeate into our cognition in ways we don't, we're not, we don't sort of anticipate. When you're doing that, you enter into a very, you enter into a couple of difficult issues. The first, as I mentioned, is the issue around, well, how do we now make sure that person who's 
our representative in the trading doesn't sort of screw us over. How do, they, how do we know they're going to stay long? I mean, when we were all living and working, as you mentioned, and cooperating together, and it's, you know, the, the village or the, you know, the, the hunter-gatherer group is raising it, we're all really a mesh together. But now individuals, and these individuals, they're probably going to be a little bit more cognitively flexible and variant, and a little bit of an outlier in the group, because they're the ones that are willing to, you know, go somewhere and travel in, in a and be a stranger in a strange land and meet strangers, right? So what are we gonna to do to make sure people stay loyal? Well, one thing what we're gonna do is we're, gonna, we're going to create, this is Matt Rossano's argument, we're gonna create rituals of commitment. We're gonna create rituals, in, and those, the point of that ritual is, until you've had the ritual, you don't actually fully belong to the group. Um, you don't mm. fully belong to the group. And, and that means all kinds of privileges are withheld from you too. And of course, we still do this today. Um, but once you go through this ritual, you fully belong to the group, but that, that ritual is gonna be demanding on you. It's gonna be demanding on you because mm -hmm. I, want, I want really clear evidence that you're gonna, you're, be, you're gonna be loyal, you're gonna stay. So like if you're gonna do, this ritual isn't gonna be something like, you know, a birthday cake, you just go at a birthday and broke down. This mm -hmm. is gonna be, no, no you really want to belong to this group and you're willing to go through this really tremendous, you know, sometimes terrifying ordeal. Mm -hmm. And so you get initiation rituals, but the point, the argument I'm going to make, so give me a, give me a chance of it, is these three sets of rituals I'm going to talk about are going to be all bound together because they mutually reinforce each other. Now the thing with the initiation rituals is they, they're sort of um, rituals for how the person going out to do the trading is looking back into his group. But what about, what, what about the outward look? He's going to be meeting some other group and some other representative. Well, what do, you know, what do you do when you meet strangers? They're threats. You, you know, right? Try to really, we, we forget because we lived in civilization for so long. What is, what is it like to meet a stranger when the whole of your life and the whole of the life of all the people around you and all the generations before you, you very, very rarely met strangers? Um, so what you need are you need rituals that are designed to um, signal that there is a possibility of cooperation between strangers and this is you know and so we have greeting rituals we have greeting and meeting rituals we still do them today well not right now because of COVID but we used to shake people's hands because that's a way of showing a bunch of things it's, I don't have a weapon in my hand you can feel my hand, is it clammy and all sweaty? Or is it, am I overly tight, am I rigid? But, or, you know, you can actually pick up quite a bit, quite fast uh, from a nice, solid, non-sweaty, firm, but not squishy handshake, uh -huh. right? It tells you a lot, right? And so we're developing these rituals, these rituals of meeting and greeting. And, then, and we, we'll often combine them together. Think about in a wedding, it's an initiation ritual. Right, and the, and the bride and the groom go through this somewhat arduous thing, and then they go away, and then they come back, and then there's a greeting ritual. We present, and everybody greets the now the couple, right? So we often combine them together too. Now, what's the third ritual in this triad? Of, and they all start to come together, and they all start to reinforce each other. Well, the thing about the initiation rituals, and even the thing about the um, 
meeting rituals, especially what they lead to, the meeting and greeting rituals, is they are very disruptive. They're putting you in, they're really putting mm -hmm. the zap on your head. They're in, introducing a lot of disruptors to your cognition. And they are directly sending you the signal that an opportunity, something new and novel mm -hmm. is here for you. A new status is here for you, a new opportunity, a new connection with this strange group of people that you meet with in the meeting and greeting ritual. So these rituals, right, are getting taken up and for you know the reasons I mentioned, but they're also transforming individuals. So what starts to happen is these individuals who are willing to go out, uh, this is, uh, you know, this is a hypothesis. Um, these individuals who already have much more labile kind of cognition, who are already sort of more open and tolerant of, you know, shifts in affect, change in cognition. They're also picking up on the transformative aspect of this. It's, it looks like a, a, at the same time we get, you know, shamanic type rituals beginning mm. in which people are now deliberate, instead of waiting for these things to happen in initiation or in trade and, and meeting and greeting, they are exacting them and they're using them to induce transformation, transformation in the altered state of consciousness. So um, I think it was Alexander Bard who uh, suggested to me that you know about 4% of the population are sort of shamanic individuals. And these are the individuals that move between the groups through the trading. And so they're used to moving between groups, moving between worlds, moving between st statuses. And so they also start to move between worlds in a mythological way mm -hmm. and in agent transformation. And, and, and all of these reinforce each other because what they do is they, they when they, like, they go into a, a shamanic state, they fly to the overworld or the underworld, and then they meet and greet, you know, the strange beings there, and then they trade information with them, and then they bring that back, and that's supposed to initiate some status change, maybe healing somebody or changing somebody's status in, in the group. You see how all of these rituals are designed, not, I don't mean designed it deliberately, but, you know, from a design point of view, they all come together, and they all reinforce and belong together. Just... Does that strike you as a coherent, plausible proposal? Yes, I think it. I think it is, and I also really think that what you're touching on here, that there seems to be a connection between the disruption and the shamanism. The disruption seems so important, and you know, and um, in my own experience, having some kind of transformational milestone birthday party is like there has to be some kind of disruption, and the shamanism or the plant medicines are a really uh, powerful way to induce that kind of thing. And I think that's what the Native Americans were doing when they did the fasting and the just... Totally, the totally, totally. So the, like the, I, I, I talk about this in the series, you know, uh, you can think about the kind of transformative experience that shamanism is trying to bring about is, is like a, a systemic insight, not just an insight here or here, but a, you know, a whole system of insights uh, around a family of related kinds of problems. So it's a developmental shift. And we, we, we have good evidence that the way you afford a, an insight, you know, you know what an insight is, you're locked in, you don't realize that you've formulated the problem the wrong way. And something needs to disrupt and break that mm -hmm. formulation up so that you can get the insight. And so uh, you, you, if, if you disrupt somebody when they're trying to, mild disruption, and they're trying to do just a local sort of intellectual insight problem, that will help induce insight. 
Um, and then if I want to induce a more comprehensive thing, I will in, 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 induce more disruption in you by fasting, uh, by using psychedelics, by extended mindfulness practices, um, you know, by solitude, pain. Pain, of course, is a very powerful disruptor. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is also what you see when you're training neural networks. You periodically throw noise, you disrupt them uh, so that they don't, they don't get too, uh, what's called overfitting to the data. They don't get too locked into local mm-hmm. patterns. You want them to be able to generalize. Well, think yeah. about how the shamans need to be able to generalize their cognition uh, to undertake these roles. So all of that, and, and then there's a vestige of that in, in, the, in the birthday party. At least a version of it that's kind of passing away, but still is found sometimes. Which, and I've had a couple, um, which is the surprise birthday party. Uh-huh. The surprise is the vestige of the challenging a moment of disruption that's supposed to for, afford a new look, right? And the blowing out of the candles is what is what's left of an element of sacrifice. You you know you're burning something and then you blow it out, right? Then the, the smoke goes up um, uh, to, to bridge between the lower and the upper, right? So you can see in, even in our, you know, way, you know, millennia later, in our, in our rituals, you can still see vestiges of the functionality. But what happened, right? And, you know, and there's lots that happens in between. There's civilization. See, civilization really does something very different for us. It makes it normal for us to live surrounded by strangers. And that, and that's and so our cognitive machinery evolves for 99.9% of our history, our biological history. We're in hunter-gatherer situations, and then we move into civilizations, and we don't have. That's not enough time for this machinery to biologically have evolved. Now we have all kinds of cultural adaptations to help us adjust, but we still are wired. I would argue and I think Matt Rossano does, we're still wired for those rituals that came into existence in the upper Paleolithic. And when we had the advent of initiation rituals, meeting and greeting rituals, uh, trade and shamanic rituals and shamanic healing, and you get, the, you get the upper Paleolithic transition, you get the invention of representational art, uh, the first indications of calendars, uh, first indication of drumming and flute music and dancing. And so human beings just go through this change and it's sort of woven into us. Now, why I, I wanted to bring that all up is to then indicate that this seems to be have been an instance, this upper Paleolithic transition, where you, you we get sort of a fairly rapid change in what it is to be a human being that was very much driven by these rituals. These rituals are, therefore, they created, I try to indicate how they emerged for specific reasons, but then they create a social environment and they create, right, they create a situation that that's the machinery, how do I want to put it? Those rituals are sort of the operating machinery at the guts of our, our, of the humanity that we inherited from the upper Paleolithic transition. It's like a, that's a psychotechnology that emerged that allows us to live together in a new way. Live together in a new way and also live together as new kinds of beings. Mm-hmm. We are now beings who live mythologically, beings who, under, who have a, a tremendous cognitive improvement in our capacity 
for insight and for getting into the flow state because we are capable of sophisticated metaphorical, symbolic, and representational thought. Think, like, look around you. Look at how much. Look behind you on your walls. You, like, you are still doing upper, and so am I. Look at me. We're still doing upper paleolithic shit. We're putting symbolic things on our walls about other places and other times. Why? Like, no, imagine if your cat started doing that. You'd go, oh my gosh, right? You'd be freaked, you'd be freaked out. But we just take it as, oh yeah, of course. That's what you do, yeah. right? Now, so this, that's what I'm trying to show you, how natural to us this machinery is. And I think part of what Zach's point is, is we have, through a long progression, we have taken, what do I want to say? We've taken the energy out of these rituals. So we, in order to make them less threatening and make them more comfortable and more fun, we have really dampened down the, this, the disruption, the surprise, the demand on us for growth and cognitive flexibility, mm -hmm. which means their capacity to transform us in a way that deepens our humanity has also been lost. Wow, that's really profound. I want to hear the i i would love to hear a little bit more on why it is that we have lost that it you mentioned that it makes it more comfortable it it just makes it easier it's a bit more um you know like i said about the birthday these days it's like it's hedonistic it's your birthday you can have ice cream for breakfast you don't actually have to go through this gigantic undertaking into a new level of personhood well yeah so think about it um so it used to be that because those were nested together, right? It used to be that the primary place in which the that constellation, the initiation ritual, um, wherever there's any, wherever you're in a liminal period and you need to go through a transform a transformation, the transformative experiences that we sort of call spiritual, and then the rituals of sociability, the rituals of connecting to people that aren't in your immediate kinship group. The, pla the, the place that was doing that for us was religion. Mm -hmm. and, and then what religion also did, and this is Zach's point, and Zach and I have talked about this a lot, is what religion also created not only a synchronic uh, networking of people together, but it also created a diachronic, so across time and across generations, right? You, so It facilitated the generational transmission. It facilitated the generational transmission. It facilitated the way those kinds of rituals are bound together mm -hmm. and mutually reinforcing each other and really um, developing our humanity. I talk about sort of um, accentuating our capacity for religio. Um, and of course, as I've mentioned elsewhere, religions are binding that up with other things like practices for overcoming self-deception, practices for enhancing uh, connectivity, all of that. So part of what starts to undermine the rituals um, it is secularism. Part of what have, has undermined the rituals even more, even further back in time, and I've already mentioned that, but I should, I, maybe I'm doing these in the wrong temporal order. So civilization reduces the rituals to some degree, uh, because like I said, it, it, we get a much more stable situation um, with agriculture and a city wrapped around you um, and living with strangers becomes more normal and we start to get the advent of the state um, to enforce 
social contracts and social behavior. Uh, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do this. I'm not a crypto anarchist or something like that. But to the degree to which the state um, can do these kinds of things for us and the state can mandate or pronounce um, how we should relate to each other, how our statuses should be changed, also starts to undermine the need um, that I have to show my commitment to you. Because if we, are, if we are living under a state, you and I don't have to show quite as much, you know, um, commitment to each other as mm -hmm. long as we both, we, as long as we're both obeying the king. Because yep. that's going to bind us together. And we obey him because if he does, if we don't, we're like, that's, we, we might get executed, we might be imprisoned, etc. So civilization and the state undermine those things. And then uh, later on, secularism. So the state takes over a chunk and then religion keeps quite a bit of it. So until quite recently, you know, Christ, the Christian rituals were uh, quite demanding. Uh, you still see uh, the demand are greater, for example, in the Eastern Orthodox version of Christianity. You can't just go and, you know, uh, I, sorry, I don't mean this to be dismissive, but, you know, North American Christianity, a lot of it, um, you know, is kind of like, well, I sort of have an emotional experience, like the Billy Graham thing. I walk to the front of the, the audience, I, I pray this, the prayer, and then I'm now, now, I'm now a Christian, and that's what it is. Um, and, and, you know, and that's a bit of a ritual, because you're, 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 you know, it's kind of terrifying. You have to get in front of, in front of people. And there's a bit of commitment there. Presumably, the emotional state is supposed to be a disruptive state, and then people are going to greet and meet and greet you as if like, with, as a Christian now. So there's a little bit of it there. But you know, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, you know, you have to study for two years and like or more, and you have to go through all these practices, uh, and like you have to really commit and you have to really show people. Um, but that's my understanding. I, I think there's a way you can be born into the Eastern Orthodox Church, different. But I'm talking about people who haven't were born into it and want to join it. Yeah, that's and, the relevant and, part here. Yeah. And so religions used to, but what, what happens is in competition with the state and then in competition increasingly with the market, um, right? The, and the market wants to, I mean, the, the market wants to commodify everything. It wants to make that all transitions and all relations are ones of, well, it's, it's actually, it's kind of interesting. It's sort of trying to reduce everything back down to a purely mechanical form of trade where all we do is exchange money. And that's how all of these other things are mediated. And so it, it takes care of all of the old problems that trading used to, to give us, right? So as the state and the market start to meet more and more of our demands and fulfill more and more of the roles and religion starts to recede under the threat of secularism, religion gets, they, they, there's this increasing idea that, well, what we need to do is we need to make it more accessible to people. We need to make it easier. We don't, we need to make it less challenging. Take down and the so, barriers to entry. Yes. And you can understand that's a very plausible idea. Right? We, got, we have to make it more entertaining. We have to make it more fun. Um, and so religion ceases to be often a place of significant ritual challenge. The rich, and many of the rituals are secularized uh, right, and commodified. And they're there for because, because of what we already talked about with the state and the market, the, the, the transformative demand and threat within them, and those go together, is also removed. So these rituals 
get, some of them just get lost. Many of them get changed and made more and more um, comfortable. Yeah, dilute. Less and less overtly demanding of transformation and transcendence, et cetera. Mm-hmm. There also seems to be a part of this that's like a cognitive overhead. Like for me as a parent to come up with in or enact or go through, create the space for these kinds of things is no small task. And so if we could just do away with that, you know, if your birthday could just be blowing out candles and opening oh, yeah. sure. five commercial products from the store, it's like, that's a pretty, that's a pretty low overhead compared to what used to be a transformational experience. And, but, but let's be, let's be kind to parents. <laughs> I'm one and, uh, you know, uh, are, do you have kids now? No. But, but you might. I have um, a great Dane and I will have kids, yes. <laughs> so, I mean, think about the deal that has been sort of worked out gradually between civilization, the state and the market, which is we have to go to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have that in hunter-gatherer societies. Mm-hmm. And, and the kids have to go to school, which is like is a separate thing too, right? And so it's, it's not only that it's a, it's, it's a cognitive load, you, uh, the, the time, that, the time mm-hmm. and co-presence that you used to have doesn't exist like it used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're lucky um, if, if you, know, you can spend an hour with your child in a day. Uh, when, when you're, when, you know, when I, I mean, my older son lives with me now, so I get to spend quite a bit of time with him. But when, you know, when my kids were growing up, you know, you, you know, and I'm trying to build a career and I'm, you know, and there's just so much and they're going to school and then they, right, they got to do stuff. Like the amount of time that I could devote and, and you know, and then everybody's exhausted. I, I, I could imagine me saying, well, now let's engage in a really terrifying initiation ritual. This <laughs> is not going to, I, I can't see it flying. Um, so the, the problem that we have is, let's, let's put the two pieces together. We are sort of, our humanity has, is sort of, I don't, it, it's geared into these rituals. These rituals really are designed to gear into our humanity and put it online and develop it very powerfully. Um, and those rituals were also uh, bound up with other rituals within religion of cultivating wisdom, etc. And then for, due to the advent of civilization, the advent of the state, the advent of the market, the advent of secularism, um, all of this has been lost to us. Um, and so in a very profound way, we often are adrift about our personhood. Mm-hmm. Because personhood is, right, and this, and I think we mask this, maybe somewhat anxiously, with talk about identity, because personhood is an achieved state, mm-hmm. right? You don't have, a, right? Um, like we, we, like to be a. Now I'm not talking about the moral obligation we have to human beings. We have a notion of human rights, and I'm not disputing that. But what I mean is. Personhood is a, you're a particular kind of entity, an entity capable of taking moral and cognitive responsibilities mm-hmm. and, and helping to uh, build and support 
the machinery by which other persons come into existence. So we aspire to personhood. I think personhood is ultimately an achievement. And it's a way in which we see our humanity getting more fully actualized. And so when you and your friends wonder, when did I become a man? This is kind of like, well, how do I know I'm a person? I'm going to make the question more threatening to you. Mm -hmm. How do I know that I actually am a person? How do I have the requisite virtues? What are the requisite virtues for being a person? There's this vague virtue of being mature. Well, what, what does that what, what does that virtue look like? And what do I do to acquire it? Uh, and how do I know? And, 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 you know and, and here's the thing. Virtue originally means a power, right? A power. That's why we say in virtua. You only know if you have a power because a power means a potential ready rep that has been honed. You only know if something's, if you have a power and you test it. Mm-hmm. It's a test for it. How do you even know if you use electricity? We have to test for it. We have to potentially get a shot. Well, how do you know if you're mature? Well, um, um, well, what were the tests that showed me what that I have it and show me what it is? Well, well I don't know. Well, if you had the initiation rituals and the other, you'd know. You go, wow, look, I went through that. I, you know, I just show courage and I had to show endurance and I had to show commitment and self-discipline and those are the and. I couldn't have passed that test if I didn't have those things. And that's what it is to be mature. So, I mean, a lot of people are adrift wondering, well, you know, am I a person in the sense of, am I an adult? Am I mature? Yes. Um, Am I a good person? Am I a worthy person? Yeah. As Um, you, as you explain it like this, it brings up the question of how is this tied to the meaning crisis? Like, it seems like this is a big, this is a potential part of a remedy for the meaning crisis if the families, the communities, the cultures are embedding more personhood into the individual. This is why I have argued that um, an ecology of practices that afford genuine transformation, put people through genuine transformative experience, really enhance their ability to enter into distributed cognition, mm-hmm. right? That's why I'm doing all the dialectic and dialogo stuff. That afford agape, which is the love, the motivation to create the conditions of and help to bring into existence person and personhood. That's what agape is. It's the love that turns non-persons into persons. Mm. This is why I've been arguing for all these things, precisely because given the, this argument and a bunch of other arguments you've heard me make, no doubt. This is what's lacking for us right now. Mm-hmm. And, th- and this is, and, and again, we, we, the fact that we, there are, there are important issues that are in which groups of people have been, you know, mistreated and are continually mistreated that are, are, are wrapped up with this issue of identity. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, I accept that and I acknowledge that and I think it's important and I do a lot to try and ameliorate those in, in, in wherever I, wherever the power that I wield in society uh, is, is in play. So that's important. But I think also one of the reasons why people are so hungry for identity 
It's because they're mistaking that for personhood. They're mistaking that for personhood. Mm -hmm. And personhood is an achieved state. It's one that you have to aspire to and, it's, uh, and you have to continually, right? Now, yes. the, 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 the paradox is, right? Every human being should always be treated as if they are a person because that's precisely how you turn a non-person into a person. Mm -hmm. But you bring the child home from uh, the hospital, right? You treat them as if they're a person, even though they're not. You know, poor John, he's such a monster. Babies, he's saying babies aren't persons. I'm saying morally they're persons because we are morally obligated to treat them as per persons because if I love them and treat them as persons, and I, gotta, I have a good understanding of what that is, they will become a person. Mm -hmm. But you don't really think they're persons. You won't let a three-year-old get married. You won't let them own a car. You won't let them right, get their, take their own medication. You won't even let them feed themselves because if they tried to feed themselves, they'd just eat candy, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you, you basically imprison them. They can't go wherever, they, like, right? They don't have any of uh, the prototypical human rights. Mm -hmm. But they're morally people because if we have agape for them and treat them as persons, there's, there's a very good chance if we don't do too bad of a job that they will become persons. Personhood is something that you aspire to mm -hmm. and it is bound up with the cultivation of, of various virtues, both individual and collective. And we don't have clear feedback for people as to when they have virtues, hmm. which of course is again, and again, notice why the topic of virtue signaling comes up. Virtue signaling, right, is and, and, you know, and to criticize all people of doing this, I think, is, is really unfair. Because even if there is some pretense there, they are trying to get what ritual is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. uh, original, all rituals are virtual signaling. Mm -hmm. When I go through an initiation ritual, what I'm signaling to everybody is, I am committed. I am part of the, I am committed. You can trust me. So, of course, people are going to be virtual, virtual signaling. And especially with respect to some important issue around identity. These things are, and I don't mean to be criticizing the people that are doing this. I'm trying to say, this is why people are doing these things, yep. because these are the vestiges of these more yes. original and more powerful versions of these things, where people were going through genuine virtue signaling, genuine yes. virtue testing, because they're going through really powerful transformative experience that is giving them very clear feedback and evidence that they actually possess certain virtues that are necessary to personhood. Yeah. I think these are the identity loops that Zach Stein is talking about that used to be closed that are now no longer being closed. And Exactly. Exactly. Okay. exactly. okay. So one of the things that I'm really curious about here as you talk about this is, you know, we've, we've lowered the barriers to entry on all of these. We've just made them watered down, easy, comfortable, blow out the candles and eat ice cream for breakfast. It seems like there's, a, there's an element of scalability that everyone gets the participation trophy as opposed to yeah. really having to earn your place in personhood as like yep. there needs to be some kind of transformational thing here. And I really want to hear about that. And then I'm also really curious to hear about love in general. So let's, Start with, 
your thoughts on, I don't know, it's almost for me, the, the, what comes up there is like this, like the participation trophy as a, that we just give everyone the participation trophy when it seems crazy to give the three-year-old the participation trophy of personhood because they can't feed themselves. Yes, yes. And so now we have a bunch of adults, air quotes, adults that walk around bearing the participation trophy that says, no, I'm an adult. I'm 18 years old. But they yes. never had any kind of identity loop that was closed by their community that says, these are the virtues that we need you to embody for us to be existentially sound. Yes, exactly. exactly. And now, that's part of, oh, sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead, Eric. And, and now we're, we, we live with the downstream effects of all of the adults living without these necessary virtues, without these necessary prerequisite foundational ways of seeing the world through a lens of reality that has us overextend our ecology, that has us overextend our, our work-life balance, our family structure, our structures of milestones and rituals and how we affirm each other and how we close these identity loops in our communities. And this is, this seems to be uh, something that we have huge downstream effects of. That's right. And where, where the meet and greet initiation shamanic rituals go for us in order to try and close those identity loops is therapy. Hmm. Because that's what you're doing in therapy, basically. In therapy, mm. you're going through processes that are, uh, are very much uh, symbolic enactments that try to give you feedback that help you grow up mm. and grow out of trauma. And these are difficult things to do. Mm. And they're very challenging. And they can be very demanding. Um, and so uh, we tend to have, therefore, um, I think it's, it's kind of, you can see why it's almost an inevitable mistake, but we have tended to, because these things have largely relocated to therapy, we have tended to misunderstand this function as a therapeutic function. Mm -hmm. And so all of these relate, everything is now is being seen through the lens of therapy. I believe in therapy, by the way, I've been through therapy. Uh, you know, I, I, I talk about how important it is. Um, so this is not me dissing. dissing. As, you know, therapeutic practice by any means. Uh, but what I'm saying is we have got a culture that is, is tended to think of all of these processes largely as um, sort of uh, therapeutic processes, therapeutic patterns. And, and so people, instead of, instead of looking, instead of aspiring to markers of excellence in, in because one has met challenges uh, that give clear uh, feedback to all that you, the requisite virtues are being inculcated we now instead are more happy to talk about um, our, our disorders and the therapeutic need for healing that we have right and so and again you can there's the, the elements of the shamanism is still there and the altered states of consciousness. And you're doing this weird ritual in the therapeutic context. But we, we have tended to, uh, we have tended to give people a sense of almost 
this might be too controversial, but I, so I, I'm asking for the charity and people who are hearing it, but it's kind of an entitlement to being always healed and taken care of. Um, and that's not good for us either. We, again, we need therapy and we do need healing. We need a lot of healing, especially from trauma. And, you know, and Zach, again, speaks very eloquently about this. But this reminds me of an important realization that's come about in psychology. And this is the advent of what's called positive psychology. And positive psychology actually addresses exactly what I'm talking about. So positive psychology addresses the fact that before positive psychology, most psychology worked in terms of a pathological model. What you basically do is you study when the mind breaks down, because that's a natural way of analyzing it into its parts, when it's breaking or breaking down, and then you figure out how it works so that you can heal it and put it back together. Freud famously said that psychoanalysis was successful if it returned people to their normal state of unhappiness. So, and, that, and that's powerful and it's laudable. I'm going to keep saying this. We need this. But what positive psychology realized is, yeah, but you know what? There's aspects of the mind that are only revealed when the mind excels beyond the norm, when people are aspiring to virtue, when they're aspiring to wisdom, when they're aspiring to self-transcendence, when they're challenging themselves to go beyond their limits. Because that puts a, a different kind of stress and strain on the mind and reveals features of it, right, that have typically not, are not disclosed pathologically. So the problem with having everything in a therapeutic context is it locks us into a pathological way of thinking about our humanity and our personhood, and we've lost the positive mm -hmm. way of framing it, yeah. and we no longer, we're no, we're no like if you bring up the people, if you, like if you were to talk to people at a party and they start to talk about some issues and, you know, a therapeutic stuff will come, yeah, that's right. But if, if you come up to someone and say, what virtue are you working now on in your life right now? They're going to look at you like, what, what, what's wrong with this person, right? What's wrong with this person, right? How, what? But come 3 a.m., when you wake up in the middle of the night and you wonder, What's my life about? Who am I? Am I a person? Am I a good person? When did I grow up? Have I grown up? You actually want to know. Well, what virtues are you cultivating? Mm -hmm. It's, I, I don't think it's the perfect analogy, but it's almost like the, I don't want to say victimization. It's almost like the difference between empowerment and disempowerment. The the feeling of having endured something to belong or feeling entitled? Well, there's, because there's, again, it's because there's two kinds of endurance and we, if we're not careful and reflective in our thought, we will collapse them together. There is the, like, look, and this is, uh, this is kind of why I, I sort of, I have, I have criticisms of both sort of the left and the right because we have, you know, we have to remember that human beings do have to endure fate. We, and, and, and the left is good at reminding us of this. Human beings have to endure fate. We are finite. We are limited. And really, like, look around you. COVID, stuff is going to happen beyond my, how much morality and, you know, transformation I have cultivated, etc. 
And then human, and what we have to do is we have to really commit to taking care of each other, compassion. And that's why cruelty is such a bad thing because mm -hmm. cruelty is pretending that you're a God and that, you know, you are somehow above fate and they should have been above fate. And that is a ridiculous denial of our mortality and our humanity. We are all subject to fate. But there's something else we also have to endure. We have to endure the cultivation of virtue. Because even though we are not gods, we are still creatures that are capable of self-deception. And we need to cultivate virtue and wisdom to overcome it. And you see, that's something that the right remembers, uh, but the left tends to forget. Uh, because if you overemphasize compassion and the fact that we have to endure fate, you will remove the demand that people have to endure transformation, that they have to endure the, the changes and the challenges that go into courage, that go into sophism, that go into wisdom. And you see, and then if you forget that, then you're prone to self-righteousness. And what's really interesting to me, it, and so, is that figures like Jesus of Nazareth and the Buddha, they, they are always criticizing both of these. They're always criticizing cruelty, and they're always criticizing self-righteousness. And that, you're like, you just, just read the gospel. Jesus is both of these consistently. And this is a profound way of saying, look, you have to remember that we're, we both have to endure fate, and therefore we do have to have compassion, and we have to we there's, we have to really work to, and, and and to care for each other. But you also have to you have to endure the cultivation of virtue. You have to endure these ritual transformations. You must be born again, as Jesus said, because we also are creatures that are if we're going to become persons. We have to take responsibility for our capacity for self-deception mm -hmm. because nobody else can. Mm -hmm. The only person, Ari, that can deal with your self-deception is you. I can give you some pointers or guiders, guiding, but if, unless you deal with it because it's self-deception, it won't get dealt with. Yeah, that's a painful realization and a big part of growing up, it seems. But you have to, you have to accept both. I mean, the, 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 we can we can be traumatized, and, and you know, and guilt often points that we we have failed to endure. Right, we failed to endure the cultivation of virtue. We have failed to go through the challenge and the change to overcome wow. self-deception. Mm. But but we can also we can also feel shame, and those aren't the same thing. Shame is when I have been sort of crushed by fate and it has destroyed my connections and my status and my place and then and then we need to and then that's something that that's something that we have to remember we that the we are such small you know there's a famous line in pascal where he says you know human beings are just they're just they're just reeds they're just reeds that can be snapped and killed mm -hmm. so easily but he says, ah, but they're thinking reads, which means one of the, the, one of the most important defenses we have against an indifferent fate is that we can help each other out. We can really commit 
to each other. And see, that's why I'm sort of, I, 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 I'm very critical of how things have gotten polarized in the left and right between these two things. Each side is forgetting something, to my mind, very important about our humanity that we need to take in hand if we are going to give people the right set of conditions for aspiring successfully to personhood. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. And I think there is a profound realization there that these are not barriers to entry with the intention of being exclusive. They're barriers to entry with the intention of helping people aspire, grow, and become people. You have to give people error feedback mm -hmm. if they're going to acquire a skill. I mean, yeah. I'm an educator. I can't give everybody an A, right? Like, so, so here, that's a good example of just what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I have those, my students, I have to put challenge on them and I have to give them error feedback. I have to, I have to basically say, you fail to overcome this incorrect way of thinking. You fail to acquire the missing information that you need. You have not yet acquired the requisite skill. I have to give them that feedback. <laughs> and that's where I'm putting, I'm, I'm asking them to endure education. But they are also, and I've seen this right now because of COVID, they're also getting slammed by fate. Yeah. And so I also have to exercise compassion <laughs> and say, right, but in this circumstance, right, uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to moderate the feedback that I'm giving to you because of the circumstances. And there's, you can't make a rule about this. Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't make an algorithm because this is going to take human judgment and mm -hmm. experience and, 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 and whatever wisdom I, I possess, right? As, at least I hope as a teacher, right? Because I'm, all, I'm constantly shifting between, you know, helping people endure fate and helping people endure education. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is, um, you know, we're just about out of time for you today, but I'd love to hear more about the kinds of things that you have done as you've raised two sons. Like, you know, here in Oregon, where I live, when you turn 16, you get a driver's license. And it was something I was just like kind of given. I just like did a driving test and I was given this driver's license where the reality of the responsibilities that you gain when you get behind the wheel of a 4,000 pound object with 300 horsepower is it's hard to fathom. Like it's a ton of responsibility, especially with that has, you know, six yeah. passenger yeah. seats inside of it. Yeah, very much. So, I mean, it's very interesting. You should ask me that because I, I, I'm, I'm kind of with Plato. I think 16 is too early. Um, I even think 18 is too early. Um, I mean, not that I shouldn't be given guidance because I do, but my son, my older son, he's, um, he's 23 right now, um, and he's been living with me for a couple of years. He's going to be living with me a couple more. And now he's very much, he's going through this. Like he, so, and he's doing all these things. He's doing the meditation and contemplation and the movement practices that I'm teaching everybody. I, I'm giving him books to read. We're having regular sort of philosophical arguments together because he is constantly testing himself against me because he is and, and, I, and I love him for this. And I'm trying to be as loving as I can in this towards him. He is testing himself against me in order to get better and clearer feedback. Mm -hmm. 
And there's times when, like, people will say, why are you letting him do that? I said, because he needs to win sometimes. Like, he needs to successfully push back on me. If I, if I constantly just say, yo, like, and, uh, you know, because, you know, I have 20 years of argumentation yeah. practice. I could, if I just sort of crush him in every argument, which I potentially could. So, again, it's this, like, ah, right? You're, like, yeah. you're, 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 you're always trying to get to a place where people are in the zone of proximal development, yes. where you put enough demand on them that they couldn't do it on their own because that, that way they have to overcome self-deception and grow. But you don't put too, too much demand on them that even with your help, they can't do it because you don't want to expose them instantly to the overwhelming, you know, combinatorial explosion of fate and just mm -hmm. crush them. So yeah. your job as a teacher or a parent, right, is to get people into that zone of proximal development and then yeah. try and shift it and adjust it uh -huh. as they grow. So you're, so, you know, it's something Peterson talked about a lot where with like rough and tumble play, you know, as yeah. a, as a father, you don't just kick your five-year-old kid's ass all the time. Sometimes you let him, you let him turn you over and wrestle you and you, you yes. can't win every single time with just a decisive uh, uh, landslide victory because the, the, it will make them discouraged. It won't actually let them grow at all. Exactly. And so, uh, and, and, and doing that and doing it without duplicity, doing it authentically out of love is, is very important. The person you should have already talked to is Rafe, Rafe Kelly, uh, because, the, the, you know, the, the stuff he's doing now where he takes people out, you know, they do the, car, the, the parkour, uh, they do the rough and tumble, they do the martial arts, uh, right? And, and, and they do, it's all the stuff we're talking about, and they do it individually and collectively. And then they come back and there's a literal campfire experience. You've really got to talk to Rafe um, you, or look at some of the conversations I've had with him because he's building up a whole ecology of practices, uh, you know, a, a whole community. And I was at his uh, uh, movement summit last Wednesday and there's all these communities, all these different ecologies of practices that are trying to bring in all of these missing ritual elements. Mm. And people are hungry for them, yes. hungry for them. Yes, we are. The thing is, and this is an important lesson, when I see somebody who is committed to agape and wisdom, the way Rafe is doing this, I am so thankful. Because when, you know, a few generations back, when we left these rituals sort of in limbo, and, and you know, and all of these movements began, these movement practices in athletics, that was the kind of things, that's where the Nazis, and everybody invokes Nazis, but this is an actual historical thing. The Nazis grew out of those movements within the Weimar Republic. And so human beings, the lesson from history I take from that is human beings are so hungry for these, they will find them no matter what. Yeah. And if we don't offer them high quality mm -hmm. versions of it by people of good faith and, and, and good character like Rafe, then they're going to go somewhere else. And that's going to be very dangerous. Wow. That's an incredibly powerful place to end off here. The, the, that essentially the weight of what actually hangs in the balance here. If we lose these things for too long, then the Sith will pick them up, right? Like the, if, yes, if you don't, exactly. if you don't curate them and create them in the light, surely they will exist in the darkness. That is well said. That is exactly well said. I mean, I have lots of criticism of, of Jordan's work, Jordan Peterson. But that idea about, which is ultimately Jung's idea, 
Mm -hmm. I mean, Jung had I, over his, you know, over his, uh, over his doorway, whether invoked or not, the gods will be present. And uh -huh. he's not making some sort of supernatural claim. It, it, it's, it's what I take him to mean exactly what we're talking about here. These forces, which are ancient and woven into the fabric of our humanity, will be present wh whether we acknowledge them and bring them into the light, like you're saying, uh -huh. or don't acknowledge them, and then they will grow mm -hmm. and plausibly grow in a twisted fashion in the dark. Wow. Yeah. Amen. It's been awesome. I think that, I think that the, uh, you know, the, the history that we talked about here and how we kind of outlined it, I really like this, that we actually might just shift the conversation. The next iteration is with Rafe talking about the movement and the, the, yes. Yes. he's implemented this. This is a great, this is a great start to the series. Excellent. Uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, if if you want, um, I don't know if you know Rafe. If you don't, I'm happy to connect the two of you up. That would be great. I do not know him. I would really love an introduction from you. Excellent, excellent. Thanks again for your time. Always fun. Thank you so much, Ari. I hope I, I hope I didn't get uh, overwrought there, but uh, uh, there, there's a lot of important points that mm -hmm. uh, uh, were coming up for me in a very present fashion. Yeah. Yeah, we really appreciate that. And as always, I just want to encourage you and the work that you're doing. I can't believe that you've done 50 hour long uh, sessions of the meaning crisis. So we, we thank you for those that are amazing. Yeah, that's a lot. Sorry, you were broken up there for a sec. Yeah, I did the 50 sessions. I think I've done like 84 of the meditation classes now. And I think there's uh, something like uh, 20 of the voices with Raveki. So yeah. I hope people don't get sick of me. Uh, I, 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 I'm kind of getting sick of me, but I hope other people aren't. Uh, I hope they still find what I'm doing valuable. It, my genuine intent is that, it, that people find it so, so. They do. They do. I know that. And I, uh, I got a lot of very positive feedback from our last talk and really appreciate it. So keep up the good work, man. It's great. It, it would be great if I could have the, uh, uh, the files for both the last talk and this one. Uh, I would love that for uploading onto my channel. That would be really great. I'd love that. That'd be an honor. I'd love to be featured on your channel. Great. That'd be fantastic. Thank you. Okay. Let's talk again soon. I'll see you in six weeks. Okay. Take good care. All right. See you, John. Bye-bye. Okay, you guys. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, and like we said, the next iteration of this conversation is going to be with Rafe Kelly. So hope to uh, bring that to you here in the next uh, couple weeks stay tuned thanks for listening and again if you want to support paypal.me slash airy in the air i got a new website being built right now uh, it's going to have a recurring donations page so maybe save up your donations for that love you guys thanks for listening stay happy stay healthy stay safe we'll see you soon peace So do you, and you, and you, and you
down, so do you. 